Good morning, church. Many years ago, I was a young student entering what was called at that time Philadelphia Biblical University. Up until that point in my life, I had really only been to two churches, uh, regularly at least, two churches ever. A very conservative, King James-only Baptist church in New Jersey, and a slightly less conservative Baptist church in New Jersey. I was kind of sheltered in that way, didn't really have many other experiences beyond that. And one of my first classes as an undergraduate student, I was tasked to attend several different churches in the area, and I had to journal about it, and I had to evaluate my experiences in each of these locations. One of the first churches I visited at that time was in a movie theater. They had uh, rented out, or I think bought, a, a old movie theater and kind of renovated the area, and it was unlike anything I had been to up until that point in my life. There were smoke machines on the stage, there were video announcements and not just like some dude getting up and telling you what was going to happen. There were uh, all sorts of interesting skits during the sermon, kind of in between what the pastor was saying. The pastor wore blue jeans, which was really weird. I don't know how I feel about pastors who do that. They had music videos playing during the music, guitar solos with like the lights kind of spotlighting these different people. It was wild and very different from what I've ever experienced. Next church I went to is a very small church, maybe 50 people, if that, very tiny building, very ornate building. They had beautiful stained glass windows all around. We, we didn't have any sort of guitar solos or guitars at all, but everyone sung from a hymn book with an organ playing in the background. I think the minimum age was about 65 or so. Um, and there was a very loud and dynamic preacher who preached right from the text of Scripture up on the pulpit or behind the pulpit. And then the other church I experienced was what they called a house church. Less than 15 people gathered in somebody's living room. No pastor that I could tell of. There was a discussion, not an actual sermon. No music, no offering, but a lot of food. That I remember, a lot of food. What is church? What makes a church a church? Last week, we finished the book of Jonah, a very short study, just five weeks long, and Pastor Austin shared that Jonah effectively lost sight of his mission. He lost sight of his identity, his election, his calling, his role in the world. All of that, he lost his focus. The next six weeks here at Riverstone, we're going to get refocused. We're going to do something a bit new and a bit different than maybe what we're used to from week to week. Instead of working through a single book of the Bible, we are going to examine God's calling, God's purpose, and God's design for his church. We're calling this series, The Church on Mission. The Church on Mission. And just as Jonah was a prophet who was called by God on a mission from God, we're going to discover the church's mission and our role in it. We're going to try to answer the question, how will a biblical knowledge of God's calling, purpose, and design for me and my church lead to a more healthy and fruitful life for me and my church? So over the next six weeks, we're going to hear from four different preachers on topics related to the church and our mission. This morning, what I want to do is I want to ask and answer the question, what is the church? What is the church? We're going to start there. We do have some Bibles. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. 
we would encourage you to evaluate what we are saying based on the Word of God, especially for this series, because we're going to be jumping around a little bit. We're not staying in just one book of the Bible. We're going to be in a number of different books every Sunday. So I would encourage you to evaluate what we're saying based on the Word of God and use that as your uh, method of moving forward. Now, when most people think of church, what comes to mind is usually a building when you hear the word church. When someone asks you, what church do you go to, they're, what, what they're asking is usually, what building do you enter on a Sunday morning? That's oftentimes what's going on in their minds. But interestingly enough, the New Testament never once uses the word church to refer to a building. There are times that it uses a metaphor of a building to refer to the church, but never does it use the word church to refer to a building. The word church comes from a Greek word, ekklesia, which literally means called out ones, and it came to be used for the word assembly or gathering. In fact, there are times in both Old Testament and New Testament that the word ekklesia is used in a non-technical way, not for the church as in God's people, but just a regular general assembly of something. At least once in the Old Testament, it refers to an assembly of angels. At least once in the Old Testament, it refers to an assembly of evildoers. At least once in the New Testament, the word ecclesia refers to an assembly of pagans in, in the city of Ephesus. Now, normally, though, the New Testament uses ecclesia in a technical sense of church to refer to the gathered people of God. Now, I mention those other examples, though, because I want you to understand that inherent to the meaning of that term is the idea of a gathering, an assembly. So the first point that I want to make sure that I emphasize this morning, the Greek word for church refers to a gathering or an assembly of people. A gathering or an assembly. Now this has profound significance for us in our time. COVID changed things. COVID was a, a watershed moment in our world, not just our country, but our world, leaving lasting change in our culture. I remember in the very early days of the virus, a friend of mine said to me, I wonder how many of these temporary changes are going to be permanent. And I, I, I kind of shrugged that comment off at the time. I didn't think there was a lot of truth to it. I, I thought he was kind of joking. I wonder now if he was more of a prophet. Before 2020, you'd almost never see a person wearing a mask, even in a doctor's office sometimes. Before 2020, it was rare to find a job that would let you work from home. And nowadays, it's becoming more normal to hear of hybrid jobs. In fact, uh, some employees are demanding their regular opportunities to work from home. Before 2020, most church services might post a sermon online every now and then, maybe after it was preached, but never the whole service. And, and nowadays, it's very difficult to find a church that doesn't live stream every service. I suppose I'll begin this series with kind of an offensive statement. I, I had someone come to me a few weeks ago and say, Pastor, I really appreciate your offensive sermons. So I'm going to give you another one to appreciate here if you do. <laughs> Watching church online is not a substitute for in-person fellowship. It's not church. Online church is not church. Inherent in the meaning of the Greek word for church is the idea of a gathered or an assembled group of people. Gathered, physically gathered. Many times when we think about all the times in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul or other writers 
talk about longing to be with people, longing to be with the gathered church. Paul doesn't say, you know, it's enough that I'm with you in spirit. He doesn't say, it's enough that we're all part of the universal church. He says things like this in 1 Thessalonians 2, we endeavor the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. He says this in 1 Thessalonians 3, we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. The writer of Hebrews says, let us consider how to stir up one another and love and good works not neglecting to meet together. You can watch a church service online, but it is no substitute for actually going to church because church is not a place, the church is a people. How will we stir up one another in love and good works if we don't even know that you're watching or we don't know who's out there, if we can't get together and interact and to know each other in their lives? To put it in a different way, Bedside Baptist is not a real church. Now, I I say things like this, I want to give a bit of a caveat because I understand that sometimes a temporary substitute is necessary. My wife and I were away last weekend. I I, I tend to say things like this after I watched a church service the week before. Uh, You know, we were away with a group of believers that we had ministered to in another church in in another lifetime, it feels like now, uh, many years ago. But as I came home, I I listened to the church service. But that was not the same thing as being at a church service. God has designed us to meet together, to live our Christian lives in person, in fellowship. Now, when referring to the people of God, the New Testament uses the word church in two primary ways. First, church can refer to a local church. I'm going to define local church as a local gathering of professed believers that are organized to worship God together. I'll come back to that definition in a minute. We'll put it up on the screen so you can, you can see it there. When, where we do see the word church uh, refer to the local assembly in the New Testament is in many different places. Let me show you a few of those places. 1 Corinthians 16, 19 is a great example of this because it uses the word church twice. Paul writes, The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Notice how the first time Paul uses it there, it's in the plural. There are multiple churches in Asia. And that makes sense because Asia is a very big place. It would be difficult for all the believers in Asia to gather in one place at one time. You would need a really, really big building. Maybe a field or something like that to gather in. The second time, though, Paul uses the word church in the singular with an article, the church that meets in their house, in Aquila and Prissa's house. Aquila and Prissa were uh, two Christians back then. We meet them in the book of Acts. They were wealthy. They had a heart for discipleship. They oftentimes opened up their home for different people to come in and even for the church to gather in their house, the church in their area. So a church met in these people's house. Notice the church wasn't the house. The church wasn't the building. It met in the building. The house was not the church. The church is a people. That's something very important for us to get our minds around. We see the word church used of these local gatherings in many different places in the New Testament. Romans 16.23, Paul ends his book by saying, Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Here's another example of a wealthy believer who hosted the church in his region, in his home. 
Back then, they didn't have church buildings. It was very uncommon to see an actual building dedicated just for the church. They didn't have multi-million dollar auditoriums. They didn't have classrooms. They, they didn't have offices. So they used someone's home. Whoever had the biggest home, that's where the church met. And when the church grew too big for that home, some of them would stay in that home and some of them find another home that was closer to their area to meet in. They would split and multiply. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul writes this book to the church of God that is in Corinth. So you see this kind of thing all over the New Testament. Believers organized based on location in what we would call the local church. Now, I defined the local church before as professing believers gathered to worship God together. I use the word professing there because I realize that not everyone who gathers on a Sunday morning is a genuine believer. Some people are coming because they were invited by a friend and they just kind of want to hear about church or maybe they're seeking God, but they don't know God yet. Some people come because they think it's their religious duty to come. Maybe they'll earn some kind of favor in the sight of God and hope to get in heaven one day because of it. Some people come because mom and dad make them come. Some people come because wife or husband make them come. Some people come to church only on religious holidays like Christmas and Easter. Christers, we call those kinds of individuals. They're, they're holiday-only Christians. Some people genuinely believe that they're Christians, and yet they're not. So there are all kinds of people that come to church on a Sunday morning, and wherever you're at, whoever you are, we're glad that you're here. It's good that you're here. The Lord has called you here for a reason. But we recognize that not everybody that's here is a genuine believer. So that's why I use that word professing. Most people that come, most people that come, profess to be believers. So a local church is made up of professing believers who gather to worship God together. But the New Testament also uses that word ecclesia or church in another way to refer to what we're going to call the universal church. Church can refer to the universal church. Now, what do I mean by that? Look at a few other biblical examples of how this word is used. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18 says, And Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Now, clearly, this doesn't mean that Jesus is the head of just one local gathering, but not all others. Like, Jesus is the head of just Riverstone, but not whatever, Davisville or whatever church down the street. Or Jesus is the head of just the EFCA churches, but not the Presbyterian or not the Baptist churches. That's not what it means. Jesus is the head of the church, as in all believers everywhere. You go across the world to different countries, and you will find that Jesus is the head of the church there too. In Ephesians, Paul says it like this, Ephesians 5.25. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. For whom did Jesus die? Did he die just for one or two local churches? Did he die just for the church of Ephesus? Did he die just for the church of America? We know Jesus died for the entire church. So clearly here, we're not talking about just one local church or local gathering of believers who arrange themselves according to geography. We're talking about the church universal. Here's one final example of that. Acts chapter 9, verse 31 so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. 
Notice how the word church here, used in the singular, is talking about believers in many different regions. Judea, Samaria, Galilee. Much too big of regions for everyone to gather in one house or in one spot at one time. So this is what we call the universal church. Same Greek word, but just different kind of way of using it. The universal church are redeemed people all around the world called to glorify God. Jesus called them. He died for them. They are redeemed, genuine believers. Paul says to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 that they are to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Jesus died for the church. He shed his blood for his people. And what we're talking about here is not just a group of people gathered in one spot. They are all around the world, and they are all redeemed, gathered, or at least scattered around the world to worship and glorify God as a people. Now remember, the idea of assembly, the idea of gathered is inherent to the meaning of the word church. How can you have a, a global or a universal gathering of believers? How can it be called church if we're talking about people all over the world? Wouldn't that be a contradiction to the offensive things that I said at the start of this sermon? Well, I mentioned this briefly, but let's dwell on this at a little bit more length. Though the meaning of the word ecclesia is a gathering or an assembly, the root of that word has a literal meaning of the called out ones. The ek part of ecclesia means out of or from, and the klesia part comes from a verb which means to call. They are the called out ones, or the ones called from something. And that is an appropriate word for believers. Believers are called out from a life of slavery to sin, from a life that will lead to only death, and they are called to God. Did you know that? You as a believer are called by God. That's an undeniable biblical fact. We are a called people. Not just in the New Testament, by the way. The Old Testament, God called his people Israel. Deuteronomy 28, verse 10, God tells Israel, so all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord. In the New Testament, multiple times, writers speak of the church as called by Christ or called as saints or called into fellowship with the Lord. So we are indeed a people who are called to a lifestyle of worshiping God, a lifestyle that rejects darkness and sin, called as saints into fellowship with the Lord. That is who we are. Now, many authors have also considered the truth that even the universal church, in some sense, is a gathered people. Spiritually, we are gathered in Christ as our body, as our head of the body. Eschatologically, we will one day be gathered. Eschatology is, is a, ref, a word that uh, refers to the end times. So when we think about the, the very end times, the, the time when Christ comes, we will one day be a literal gathered people again. So by using the term church, which, which means assembly or means gathering of the universal people of God, it's, a, it's kind of like a mini prophecy. It's great theology we will one day unite as a collective people of God when the Lord returns in his glory. It's a great promise of things to come. But either way we cut it, what we see is that the church is not a building. The church is a people. The local church meets in a building sometimes. The universal church would not fit. 
Now, sometimes in my theology classes, I like to put the difference between local and universal church like this, kind of make a convenient chart to work through. The local church is geographically located. In other words, it's in one place at one time. We are a local church right now gathered together in this one location. The universal church is global, people all around the world who are redeemed in Christ. Local church is visible. You can look around and see who is part of this church. The universal church is, we say, invisible. Not that the Christians on the other side of the world are not visible, literally, but we can't see them all at once. The local church is made up of professed believers. I I went over what that means, that people who claim to be Christians, maybe not all of us are. The universal church, on the other hand, these are all redeemed believers, genuine believers. Local church is an organization. Uh, Universal church is an organism. Now, that's where the lines get blurred a little bit because we are really, what we are is an organized organism here, aren't we? The local church is temporarily gathered. In a few minutes, I'm going to say a prayer, say amen, and you're going away. You're going to leave here to go do whatever you do after you come here. It's temporarily gathered. The universal church is what we call eschatologically gathered. In other words, in the end times, we will indeed be gathered together as God's people, as one. Now remember, the driving question of this sermon is what is the church? So I'm going to answer that in two different ways. Answer number one, when we talk about the universal church, is the church is the redeemed people all around the world called to glorify God. Answer number two, when we're talking about the local church, is professing believers gathered to worship God together. Now, before we get to the last half of both of those statements, the the worshiping and glorifying God part, I want to address something just very briefly. Up until this point, I have purposely avoided the when question. When is the church? In other words, when did the church begin? Would you count Abraham as a member of the church? Would you count David as a member of the church? Are both Old Testament and New Testament saints part of the church, or does the church consist of just people from the time of Pentecost, Acts chapters 1 and 2, and beyond? As you might know, there are differences of opinion on that question. I just alluded to it. As I mentioned before, uh, both Old and New Testament saints are called by God. There's a lot of overlap here and a lot of continuity between Old and New Testament believers. Both are called, both are elect, both are saved by faith, by God's grace. That's something that some people get wrong sometimes. But even in the Old Testament, believers were called by faith and saved by God's grace. Not by doing works, not by sacrificing, but only by faith. So there's a lot of continuity, and some people see a full continuity between Old and New Testament saints. The church is the new Israel, or the church consists of true Israel. All the promises to God, of God to Israel are fulfilled in the church and enjoyed by the church. Now, others see more of a discontinuity than a continuity. The New Testament church is something entirely new. It began at Pentecost, and it ends when Christ returns at the rapture. God is still, has, he has promises left unfulfilled for his national people, Israel. Now, personally, I believe that something started at Pentecost. Acts chapter 11, verse 15, Peter is speaking to a group of people and he relates a recent experience he had to the day of Pentecost by saying, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. 
And he uses the word beginning to refer to Acts chapter 2 and the events right there. Something began at Pentecost. But I do appreciate the views of those who see a great continuity between Old and New Testament. I think they take seriously the way that the New Testament describes the church in Old Testament Israel terms. I think they take seriously the work of Christ in both Old Testament and New Testament people of God. But the point here and the point of this series is not to dive into that question and try to answer the when. When did the church begin? The point is to say that God has called his people to something. People local and people global all around the world are on a mission from God to fulfill his purposes. So the first point that we've seen this morning related to the church is that the Greek word for church refers to a gathering or an assembly of people. And we saw the New Testament uses that word in two primary ways. It could refer to the local church, professing believers gathered to worship God together. It can refer to the universal church, redeemed believers all around the world called to glorify God. Now what I want to do is I want to bring all that together and think about another truth that the Bible teaches. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I'll still have this on the screen, but I want you to have this open in front of you because we're going to camp out here for a few minutes. Romans 12, verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, we could have spent a long time just on this verse, but let me point out a few features of this text. First, the Apostle Paul is very clearly writing to believers. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, Christians. Now, second, this command follows 11 chapters of teaching which develop the gospel. In 11 chapters, Paul tells us, here's what the gospel is. Jesus died, or we are all sinners, Romans 1 to 3. Jesus died to save us from that sin, Romans 4, 5, and 6. Our salvation in Christ gives us eternal hope and security, and his promises are certain and secure, Romans 7 to 11. Paul summarizes all of that with five simple words here, by the mercies of God. His appeal here in Romans 12:1 is not based on our good works. It's not based on Paul's powerful logic. It's based on the mercies of God. Now third, Paul commands believers to be living sacrifices, and he calls that our spiritual worship. Living sacrifice is a bit of a contradiction of terms, isn't it? The very definition of sacrifice is something that dies. Yet paradoxically, we are to live our lives sacrificially, killing our selfish desires, our old lifestyle daily. We live holy and acceptable to God, and that, Paul says, is our worship to the Lord. Now, notice that he doesn't use that term worship to refer to just the the 20 minutes of singing on a Sunday morning. The word worship in the Bible is much broader and much richer than that. Worship includes singing, but it also includes literally everything else you do. We are always worshiping something. We might be worshiping ourselves or our idols or someone else or based on our obedient and holy lifestyle, we move through our life worshiping God. That's the ideal. Again, that doesn't mean that we walk through life just singing to God, right? I mean, 
that's weird if we just sing all the time like we're in some sort of Broadway play. But we move through life with a heart of worship. When we obey, when we do what God calls us to do, that is worship. We exhibit this heart of worship. Doing your job, even a secular occupation, doing it with integrity is worship. Washing the dishes without grumbling and complaining to your spouse is worship, which reminds me of what I need to do after the church service is over. (laughs) Eating with gratitude is worship. Believers should be worshiping God all the time with hearts of obedience to him. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Worship happens all the time. It doesn't turn on and off when we enter and leave this building on a Sunday morning. By saying whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, Paul's leaving nothing out. Eating and drinking includes everything in between, and whatever you do includes whatever you do. Everything we do should be done in worship to God. Someone once asked me as I was teaching on this uh, in another church, they said, well, how do we worship God while we're sleeping? How do we glorify God in our sleep? Who are you sleeping next to? Your spouse? Your phone? Someone else? Are you getting enough sleep? Are you honoring God with your body by making sure that you are responsible with your Sabbaths and your daily rhythms? Are you drifting off to sleep with thoughts that are pure and holy and honorable to God? So yes, even in our sleep, there are ways to glorify God. Now bringing all that together and bringing it to bear on the church, the second point that I want to emphasize this morning is that the church exists to glorify God and to worship him together. This is our primary purpose as a church. We do not exist just to make budget. We do not exist just to put on good programs for the community. We do not exist just to help you live a better and more fulfilled life. Though all of those things could and probably should indeed happen. We exist to glorify God and to worship him together. Now, since that's true, I want to draw out just a couple quick, important theological truths from this. And this is going to sound a little bit blasphemous at first, so bear with me when I make this statement. When we gather as a church, we do not gather to worship. That sentence isn't complete. So let me put it like this. The church does not gather to worship. The church gathers worshiping. We should be worshiping as we come in these doors and as we leave these doors. You should come in these doors already with a heart of obedience and worship to God. We've all had those mornings when, when our temperament is cranky towards our family while we're getting ready. Maybe we woke up a little bit late. Kids are yelling at each other and fighting in the car. You're screaming at them. You're speeding. And then you pull into the parking lot and you go, okay, it's time to worship God. <laughs> We've been there. I've been there. God doesn't like that disconnect. He hates hypocrisy. He'd rather you come worshiping with a worshipful heart. Worship does not start and stop when the service starts and stops. Now, a similar point to that is that the church does not gather to worship. The church gathers to worship together. Individual worship should be going on and on and on in your life, which means when we get together, We are getting together already worshiping, but we are getting together to worship God as a community gathered together. We gather to do what God has called us to do 
together. Things that we can only do as a gathered people of God. There are certain commands that only work in a community. We gather to sing songs of redemption together. We gather to worship God through baptism and communion. We gather to teach Sunday school and to sing on the praise team. And even when you listen attentively to the sermon, you are worshiping God together. There are commands that we can only do together. You ever try baptizing someone alone without anyone with you? It doesn't work, does it? You ever ever try making disciples when you're the only one there? It doesn't work. You ever tried obeying all the one another commandments in Scripture if it's only you? Honor one another, build one another up, love one another? How How do I build someone else up when I'm all alone watching something on a couch? We gather worshiping and we gather to worship together as a church. As a local church, we are a group of professing believers gathered to worship God together. As a universal church, people all around the world, redeemed people, are called to glorify God with their lives. Our identity, both locally and globally, helps define and motivate our mission as the people of God. Who are we? Well, we've already answered that. We are the redeemed church of God. What is our purpose? Our purpose is to glorify God and to worship him together. And as we launch this new series, I hope that that truth will drive us forward. Next Sunday, we're going to get a little bit more specific about that mission. What is the mission of the church? Then we're going to talk about worshiping God through ordinances, baptism and communion, things we can only do together as a church. We're going to address the idea of church membership Is that sort of thing actually found in the Bible or is that something that church leaders have just made up? And we're going to end this series by talking about our church's vision, God's vision for not just the church as a whole, but for Riverstone Church. Where are we going as a local community of believers? It's going to be an exciting series leading us right up to Thanksgiving. Just as you have come here hopefully worshiping God and to worship God together, My prayer is that you will leave here worshiping God as a universal church as well. Let me pray in that regard. God, I am so grateful for the church that is gathered here this morning. This community of believers gathered to worship you together. I pray that you would hear our worship through song, through sermon, through prayer, through giving, through using our spiritual gifts, and through many other means, and that you would be exalted and glorified among us. Lord, I pray that as we consider our mission, I ask that you would redefine our identity in the word of God and in you. Help us to know who you are and what you have called us to. And Lord, I pray that in all these weeks to come, that you would continue to guide us forward and give us a clear vision for our future as Riverstone Church. Thank you, Lord, for the redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus. May you be honored and exalted in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for gathering together this morning. God bless.